one of the things that I always teach my students is that the only difference between successful and unsuccessful people is that successful people fail more. It's not about your successes. It's about your failures. It's about how much you put yourself out there. And so by definition, successful people have actually failed more because they have put themselves out there more often. Welcome to the Disrupted Workforce, where we help courageous professionals explore, expand, and evolve in the future of work. Are you curious to understand how all these disruptions are changing how we work in our careers? Trying to self-assess and build an actionable plan to thrive in the future of work? Looking for research and insights from thought leaders to help you and your organization? Then this is the show for you and you found your tribe. I'm Alex Schwartz. And I'm Nate Thompson. And we are your hosts. TDW fans, we are excited to share our fascinating guest with you today, Dr. Danny Dimitriou. To ensure you don't miss her or any of our top voices in the future of work, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen and also our YouTube channel. Dr. Danny Dimitriou is a pediatrician, neuroscientist, and pediatric environmental health scientist. Her groundbreaking work is to explore how we create a society where more people are more connected more of the time. And her research is to uncover the science of resilience and human connectedness, focusing on really powerful questions like, can we scientifically define the magnetism that exists between us? How does it form in early life? And why are some people more resilient than others? Danny spends 80% of her time as the principal investigator at the DOOR Lab. DOOR stands for the Developmental Origins of Resilience, where she studies the neural circuits of stress resilience in humans and animals. She spends 20% of her time in clinical practice as a newborn hospitalist at Morgan Stanley's Children's Hospital. And she's also an assistant professor of pediatrics and psychiatry at Columbia University Medical Center, where she started the interdisciplinary multi-hospital COVID-19 mother-baby outcomes initiative and serves as director of the Nurture Science Program at Columbia Pediatrics. I need to take a breath. That is a lot of hats to wear at once. And I want to say that while most medicine is focused on treatment, Danny and her team's critical work is focused on preventions. For example, how do we increase resilience and social connection to prevent things like depression, anxiety, diabetes, and even high blood pressure? Her work has been published extensively in top scientific journals. It's funded by the National Institute of Health, or the NIH, and Einhorn Collaborative. Now, I met Danny after hearing a great talk of hers at the Nantucket Project, The Science of Human Connection. We grabbed lunch. I was riveted by her journey and how relevant her research is, not only to the future of work, but also humanity as a whole. Danny, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alex. And after your introduction, I think I need to cut down on some of my affiliations because this is uh, getting a little bit out of hand. (laughs) (laughs) Robust. Danny, I want to talk a little bit about what a pioneer you have been in your field. But before I do that, I would love for you to give a little bit of the backstory of how you got here, which you told me at TNP, what you realized when you were a kid about mental health and your own path to resilience through your career, and 18 years of postgraduate work to get your degrees. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey and that aha moment you had when you were a kid that led us to the conversation that we're having today? Sure. 
Um, I don't remember exactly how old I was, but I would say somewhere between the age of five and seven. Um, I made this observation in my family that the people who were getting all the migraines and the diabetes and the hypertension and any other ailment, sort of physical ailment, were the same people that also had more of the mental ailments. And of course, I was in Romania, so nobody talked about depression or anxiety, but you know, you just kind of noticed that people were a little special, right? Um, they were the people that, that would have to kind of be locked up in a room for a little bit. Um, and, and I made this you know, um, connection that the mind in terms of sort of the psychological mind and the biology of the human were uh, intricately connected. And then um, as a teenager, when I moved from Romania to uh, Sweden, my first immigration, um, which happened still during communism, which uh, happened with my parents, I began to read a lot about the placebo effect and became really fascinated by this concept that basically your mind and your brain and your expectations are connected to every single part of the body, right? So, um, you know, the, the beautiful thing about the brain and the reason I would never study any other organ is that it is connected to every other organ um, and, and can influence the, the um, well-being of every other war- organ. And so, you know, what really fascinated me was this idea that we already have a ton of tools to both heal and prevent disease right here, right? Um, but we're not using them. And especially in modern society, for the past uh, century, we've had this you know, enormous growth in terms of how we treat disease, but we've completely sort of ignored the fact that we also have treatment that is just naturally sitting, you know, right, right in here, right? And so I became fascinated with this idea of how can we use what we already have biologically in order to, to both treat and prevent disease. But the important part about my journey is that it was uh, not, I was not the kid who everybody thought was going to succeed. And um, in fact, the first time that I applied to medical school in, in Sweden, I did not get in. And so, um, you know, that was pretty disappointing, but um, I, I did what I do best when I fail, which is uh, escape. Uh, so I moved across the world from Sweden all the way to Hawaii. Um, and I started, you know, it, it was sort of my consolation prize. That, that was a good place to warm up my bones and, um, and soothe my, my, uh, my broken ego. Um, so I started from scratch. I started with an undergrad, right? Like if you come from Europe, an undergrad is the equivalent of your high school. So in, in many ways, it was just starting from scratch. Um, but I also discovered science during that time. That was the time that I, that I actually became familiar with science and I became, you know, really fascinated with the scientific method and, and what it could bring to this work. And so I ended up applying to an MD, PhD um, and um, I didn't get in. And so uh, what do I do when I fail? Um, escape. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I ended up in New York. <laughs> and um, uh, I, I picked myself back up and uh, I applied again and I still didn't get it. So that was, uh, you know, the third time I still um, I still actually have a physiological reaction right now when I'm telling this, like my heart rate just went up, my blood pressure just wow. went up. Um, you know, it was a very, very hard moment um, in my life. Is it was a moment that uh, I pretty much decided to quit. But uh, I had, you know, really good colleagues and friends who told me just one more time, 
Um, and so, so I applied one more time um, and, and that's when I got in and I spent the next 14 years at Mount Sinai uh, doing an MD, a PhD, a pediatric residency and a pediatric environmental health fellowship. And, you know, I, I try to incorporate a lot of this journey um, into my talks because uh, on paper, I look very successful right now. I'm only five years into my um, academic faculty position, um, but, you know, I'm very well funded. I, I publish really well. But I remember being the student in the room who, you know, never thought I was going to get to this point um, and and remember the failures. And, you know, one of the things that I always teach my students is that the only difference between successful and unsuccessful people is that successful people fail more. You know, it's not about uh, your successes. It's about your failures. It's about how much you put yourself out there. And so by definition, successful people have actually failed more because they have put themselves out there more often. That is one of the most beautiful definitions of success I have heard in my entire life. It's just what a powerful way to share your story is the type of work that you do is intimately connected to your journey to get to the type of work that you do. So I had to keep hustling, keep trying, keep getting to different conditions and new conditions to evolve and grow as a human being. And by just being so resilient, you were able to turn it into this beautiful thing now that's unfolding before you. I, I want to I wanna jump forward to what I, where I said I wanted to get to, which is that you are a pioneer in two really big ways in the medical field. And first is you've been able to architect a flat organizational structure in your lab where PhDs and interns are all titleless and everyone is treated like equals. And I believe this is pretty uncommon uh, in your field. And second, your focus, as you've shared with us, is really on preventing medical conditions, using the mind, while most of medicine is focused on treating conditions. So I would love just to get some of your insights uh, about your experience in disrupting the status quo and how doing things differently has served you. So let me start with my with my lab, um, which I'm very proud of, and 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 very uh, I'm, a, I'm the proud mama of about sixty people in, in my lab, and and um, we really enjoy what we're doing. Um, I, I don't think I would call it a flat organizational structure. It's more of a uh, organic hierarchical structure where uh, rather than assigning the hierarchy by their prior experience and titles, it's assigned by their experience in my team. Um, and it's also really importantly not assigned with any kind of uh, attitude of one thing being better or worse, right? So leaders are naturally born in my team and leaders naturally are removed from my team, but neither one of those is assigned uh, a positive or negative valence, right? It's not, not everybody has to be a leader. If we had a world full of leaders, oh my God, we would never get anything done, right? Um, and so <laughs> when, when a leader is removed or moves down um, that hierarch organic hierarchical structure, it's, it's seen as, as the same as when a move, uh, leader moves up, right? And so what I try to do in my team is to really understand each person's strengths and unique contribution rather than assign them uh, a particular uh, spot in my team. And, and, you know, this happens actually very organically. And, and one of the things that I found is that the less I try to interfere, the, the better it is, um, the, the more it happens yeah. organically. And so I have very few rules. Um, it, it, pretty much the only rule I have in my lab is don't be an asshole. 
Like that's like, that's it. Like, just don't be an asshole. You know, uh, you'd be amazed how far you can get in life with just that simple rule, you know, right. and, and, and don't accept assholes into, into yes. our team, you know, that's yes. pretty much it. Yes. And then in terms of uh, going back to the uh, other disruption um, in terms of prevention. Yeah, no, I think that this is, this is fundamentally what medicine will have to focus on over the next hundred years, right? Because what's happened is that we've made this incredible progress, right? In treating disease, but we're now stagnant and we're plateauing and actually life expectancy is starting to drop a little bit, right? And the reason it's doing that is because preventable diseases are the ones that have gone up a lot. Things like diabetes and depression, well, depression, um, I think most most people intuitively think that can be prevented, but things like diabetes and hypertension and even many cancers can also be prevented. Not all of it, but but a lot of the percentage, uh, a lot, a huge proportion of things like diabetes and hypertension and cancer can be prevented um, if we enhance those natural circuits of resiliency, those natural pathways by which the brain can actually do things like lower blood pressure and, um, and, and, and stop the squeezing on the, you know, the arteries in, in your body. Um, so I think that, that the next big push in medicine will have to be a shift away from treatment-oriented research to prevention-oriented research. We know lack of physical connection can be devastating, right? And it's including a 29% increased risk of heart disease, 32% increased risk of stroke, and a 50% increased risk of developing dementia for older adults. Now, keep me honest on those stats. Our audience is leaders and professionals, and this is a conversation that's gotten really big at work. It's not never really been a part of work, but now it's, it's prominent, and we spend a lot of time there at work. This is where we spend most of our life. So um, we're experiencing this loneliness epidemic. Why do some people sync up with each other while others don't? Well, Nate, um, you know, it, it, you're going to probably be surprised, but we actually don't know. Um, this is a very much open scientific question. Understanding how two people actually connect is a completely uh, novel question that hasn't really had a scientific uh, basis yet, right? So we've assumed throughout uh, you know, the history of social science that it's just kind of two people hanging out together, right? And, and what's really been the focus of this work has been how does an individual in that kind of dyadic interaction act, right? Like what does the individual do? What does the individual say? What does the individual feel? But the problem with connection is that it doesn't actually happen in individuals. It doesn't happen in the two individuals that are part of the diet. It happens in the space between. Mm. It's something that happens that is an emergent property of their interaction and so far, scientifically, we haven't focused on that space between. We focus on the individuals and we can't actually understand the true meaning of what a social bond, social connection, what this, what we've been calling in my lab magnetism is until we focus on that space between. I've, my whole life, I've heard people say, oh, there's just chemistry. Exactly. Yes. Some people call it uh, chemistry. Some people call it connection. We've been trying to coin this idea of magnetism to give it a uh, you know, an intuitive feel, right? The way the two magnets come together. You know, I, I do this little trick that I think Alex saw at, at the Nantucket project where I actually give the magnets uh, to people and ask them to describe each of the two, uh, you know, objects. I give them two objects and I ask them to describe those two objects and then to, you know, guess if they're going to be magnetically attracted to each other. And that's literally what we're doing with humans, right? 
there's no way that you can describe two individuals and know whether or not that they're going to be magnetically attracted to to each other, right? And and then when you see it, it's it's kind of like magic. The same way that two magnets coming together, it must have looked like magic, you know, hundreds of years ago before we had the magnetic force, uh, you know, concepts, things like Tesla to describe that force between two two objects. What about other things like just key attributes, if you know yourself reasonably well? I mean, pheromones play a role, I would imagine. People are attracted to certain smells. People are you know, look at certain attributes in, in terms of who they might choose for a mentor or a leader. Are there any hypotheses that you have that you know, might flesh out this idea of, of what is unknown and where you guys are heading with this research? Keyword there is hypotheses. Yes, I do have hypotheses and I want to point out that they are hypotheses and we're planning on testing them. And, and so a lot of what I'm going to be talking about right now is, is really a, a field in its infancy and not um, the actual answers that I'm going to hopefully be able to give you over the course of my career. Um, so some of the things that we do know from, from other folks uh, in, in this field are that when two people really connect or when that chemistry happens, um, there is synchronization of things like heart rate synchronization of things like brain waves, synchron- behavioral synchronization. So there's, there's this flow that people have measured. Um, even down to things like pheromones tend to be similar between two people who are actually attracted to each other. So there is this synchrony, biobehavioral synchrony at many levels that, are, that happens during um, what, when that connection happens between two individuals. But how that synchronization happens, that is completely unknown. And there definitely is no way right now to take two individuals and sort of measure whatever their attributes are in, in, in those realms and then know if they're going to be connected. Um, and so right now it still is this magic that we're just kind of observing when, when it happens and then trying to figure out how it happens. And again, how that synchronization happens, right? So it's not that their brains are synchronized before they're coming together. It's like when you put them next to each other, their, their brains actually get synchronized. And we can either predict when that's going to happen, no, nor know how that happens. One quick follow-on question is this, the, the term attraction, I think a lot of um, society has that connected or associated to romantic. But in this case, magnetic attraction is literally just what, what is it about these two people having nothing to do with a romantic connection is also a type of attraction. Is that correct? A hundred percent. And I think attraction, um, there are many types of attraction and they, and, and romantic attraction is one parent to child or child to parent are two additional, um, types of attraction. And, and those two are different sibling attraction, you know, even mentor mentee attraction. Those are all unique types of attraction, but the core of it, the core of that magne- magnetism, I actually think will be physiologically the same. Once we mm. identify the information transfer, I think it will be physiological. I think it will be fundamentally a very similar force that describes that attraction and just have additional attributes to it. Um, you know, perhaps, a, a, you know, the sexual attraction part of the brain, you know, being engaged simultaneously during this attractive force for romantic partners, the prefrontal cortex, which really you know, is the thinking and planning part being engaged when that attraction happens between a mentor and mentee and so on, right? So, but I think that at a very fundamental level, that attraction is going to be very similar across the the different types. That's fascinating. It is fascinating. How do you explain it when it's it's one way and not reciprocal? Like, for example, 
you know, Nate really likes me in a platonic way as a friend and as a business partner and as a comrade. And I don't have any of those warm feelings toward him. So like, how would you, how would you, how would you think about that? Wait a minute. <laughs> you know, I did not think that I was here uh, to provide counseling to the two of you, but uh, <laughs> I wear a lot of hats. So maybe this is one of them. Taking this into the struggle that we have, we founded TDW during the pandemic because we knew that work was never going to be the same again and that it was going to change our lives at the same time. And that this was something that we all needed to be talking about because it's so fluid, it's unfolding before us, and we're all trying to navigate. One of our first episodes was about resilience. And we've continued to focus on resilience as we ebb and flow through these disruptions. It's, it's this thing that we think is a superpower. The more change that happens, we think resilience becomes more and more important. And you're at the forefront of resilience research. So in your words and through the lens of your research, why is resilience so important right now? I mean, I think it's always been important. I think it is part of survival of the fittest, right? Um, uh, so it's, a, it's ultimately important uh, from, from every point of, you know, of life, um, you know, whether it's in the moment or in evolutionary times. But, you know, actually, let's, let's start with the definition first, right? Because you know, many people think of resilience as just the absence of letting hardship bother you, right? It's this sort of passive thing. It's just like the people who are just kind of insensitively going through the world and when bad things happen, it doesn't bother them. That's actually not the definition that I um, really employ in my research and that comes from a lot of my, my work, including my animal work, which is that resilience is a very much active process, right? So one of the coolest studies that influenced me early in my career that comes from my, my mentor, Dr. Eric Nusser's work, is when they took mice that were resilient and mice that were susceptible, and they looked at their brains um, after the stressor, and they, they did a, a massive sort of omic kind of study to look at all the different genes that were turned on and turned off by the stressor. It was the resilient animals who had much more changes. There were many more both activations and inactivations of gene transcription products in the resilient animals. So it's a very much active process. Similarly, in his work, uh, in, in part of his early work, um, it was shown that uh, a brain region that is very much uh, involved in motivations, the VTA, the ventral technical area, it was actually in the animals that were resilient that it was like, you know, flashing on on during the stressor. And so it's really important to, to reframe resilience away from this passive process of things don't bother you to a very much active process that the brain is doing to acknowledge the stressor and figure out an active coping mechanism of not letting that stressor change the physiology of the individual, the biology of the individual, the psychology of the individual. That's fascinating. I, I want to share, I think one of the things that I do on a regular basis, and I think you just brought it to life how this practice manifests for me is I've been doing cold plunge since uh, 2020. And just about every time, the first minute my brain is firing and it's saying, Alex, you're out of your mind. You're going to die. Get out of here. You're going <laughs> to freeze to death. This, this, is, this, is, this is just, this makes zero sense. You know, you live in Miami. Why are you in an ice bath? You're in a warm climate <laughs> for a reason. And I have to breathe through it and I have to tell my nervous system, no, you're, you're actually okay. You're doing this for a health benefit. You're doing this for a reason. You're going to feel really great afterward. Is that what you're talking about? 
Exactly. That is exactly what I'm talking about. You are engaging actively and you're making the choice of engaging the processes that we believe are the processes underlying resilience, which are the processes by which your mind can actually control um, things in the real world, whether it's your own physiology or, you know, other things um, in the world, right? So resilience is this very active process. And, you know, the reason your, your example is so important is because a lot of what's happened in the world in the last few decades of understanding toxic stress, right? So in, in pediatrics and developmental psychology, we talk a lot about the ACEs study, uh, adverse chi- childhood experiences, right? So there's really beautiful work showing that if you tally up the number of big adverse childhood uh, experiences or ACEs uh, in a human's history, right? So things like divorce, the death of a a parent, et cetera. There's a dose-response relationship with virtually every health outcome later in life. So increased risk of diabetes, increased risk of cancer, even increased risk of broken bones, which is super fascinating, right? So the more of these ACEs you have, the more chance that you're going to have broken bones at some point in your life. And so because of that work, which is really important work, there has been this big focus on removing stressors in life. And what we're seeing with the resilience work is that that actually is not necessarily the way to move forward. Because while we're removing stress, we're also removing the good stressors. So that stress that you just described, that's a good stressor that you are choosing to do in order to train those resilience circuits in your brain to, uh, you know, it's, it's like any other muscle, right? The, the more you use them, the more you, they get stronger. And so in, in current modern society, you know, we have a lot of this emphasis on removing stressors. And what's happened is that, for example, we don't let kids compete anymore, right? Because we don't want anybody to be stressed. But competition is really important. So what are the key elements in the example that you just talked about? Well, the number one key element is that it's your choice. So you are actively choosing to put yourself through a challenge, right? And that's why sports is so important and why kids should, you know, uh, be encouraged to do a lot of sports. Those sports are stressful. They're stressful on the actual physical body. They're stressful on the mental body, right? But they're really important training tools to actually improve, not just through the exercise, but through that grit that you're learning during sports um, and, and the competition to exercise their resilience networks. So how do we begin to think about the course correction away from that? Because that's really where your work is going, right? It's understanding that these things have happened and now we need to help these individuals kind of deal with these things better so that we have this modicum of prevention. Right, exactly. That's the question. And that's the reframing that my lab is trying to work on, right? What we're saying is, look, stressors are going to happen. We're not saying don't remove stressors. Obviously, we would like a, a world without wars and famine and, and uh, violence and other things that happen early in life that can really mess people up for the rest of their lives. But in the absence of being able to create the perfect world, you know, what else can we do? And that's the point about resilience, right? That we believe that the circuits of resilience are fundamentally different than the circuits that are engaged during stress. So we're working on the principle that there are two different parts of the brain, two parts of the physiology, two, two different pathways in the brain. And in the absence of being able to remove the stress, uh, the, the parts that are affected by stress, what if we take the resilience ones and we really work to enhance those, right? And then you're having a buffering effect later in life when new stressors um, occur. I want to take this to adults for a second. 
we we're in a pretty tough moment. We've got global conflict on the rise. There's fear and talk about a potential larger war. The economy is looking a bit more uncertain. Inflation is high. People are worried AI will take their jobs. And as a country, we're politically polarized and divided. And, and all of this is occurring less than three years after a pandemic and, and global lockdowns ended, right? So that's a lot of stressors in a really short period of time. What are some practical ways that we as adults can become more resilient and kind of navigate these constant stressors? Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the key question, you know. And um, when the pandemic happened, I was never afraid of the virus, but I was terrified of what this virus would do to, to our world, right? And, and while the lockdowns and the social isolation, the social uh, distancing were really important tools in preventing the spread of the virus, they also definitely had unintended consequences of distancing people from each other, right? And so how do we get back? That, that's the million dollar question because the problem is, um, actually, I'm going to make this really concrete and I'm going to also bring in my personal story of uh, having a daughter with very severe um, depression. Um, and, and, and this actually happened during COVID. It, and um, interestingly, it happened as a, a viral induced uh, disease. It wasn't COVID, it was a different virus. But um, what happened was that when my daughter had a, a viral infection in the spring of 2020, that uh, induced in her something called autoimmune thyroiditis. That's when antibodies basically go haywire in your body. They attack certain parts of your body. In this case, they attack her thyroid. Her thyroid function plummeted. And when, her th- and when thyroid function plummets, that causes all kinds of things in the body. Um, it kind of slows the whole body down. And one of the many uh, consequences to the health can be depression. And the reason this is such an interesting um, example is because uh, autoimmune thyroiditis induced depression is super common. We know that medically. We know exactly how that happens medically. But the problem is that you can't just fix the thyroid and get the depression to go away. So there is no pathway by which you can restore that thyroid function and that also restoring the mental health problem and removing the depression. And so this is an important example of once people slip into the loneliness, once people slip out of you know, the normal social connectedness, it is not so easy necessarily to, to get back into that, right? There's, there's a, the, the, the path back is not just the removal of the separation, right? And that's the point in history that we're at. We're at the point of trying to understand now that those connections, those social connections have been broken, how do we get them back? You know, but some simple things are actually being out in, in the social world, right? It's, it's, this is not uh, brain science or rocket science. Uh, I, I don't have to be a neuroscientist to tell you that, right? Just by being out and putting yourself out back into the world, uh, you have a higher likelihood of encountering someone who you really connect with. And, and how we get back to that, it's going to take very small steps of just pushing yourself, you know, through, right? So there's the first thing that you have to engage is your individual resiliency circuit, that circuit that is, you know, going to get you out of bed and, and, and make the decision of actually uh, going into the office instead of working from home that day, right? And then when you get into the social situation, you need to engage your social resiliency circuit. That's the circuit that is able to be open and vulnerable and inviting to another human being, 
even in the absence of knowing for sure that you're going to connect, right? But having the ability to actually just put yourself into that situation where a bond can be created. Taking this idea of stress, and Alex painted this picture of stress that we're dealing with, and and we're connecting it to resilience. Um, I'm interested in the idea that some people seem to be less impacted by stress, and some people seem to be more impacted by stress. So is there, as your research goes, is that something that you've been able to identify? Yeah, these, these, this group over here, this control group is less impacted by stress. And we think we have an idea why. Yes, absolutely. Uh, there are individuals, both in, in animal world and in, hum- in the human world, that are less impacted by stress. But again, I want to stress the, situ- the, the fact that it's not that they're not feeling the stressor, right? It's the fact that they are not allowing that stressor to change or alter their behavior or their uh, emotional status or their psychological well-being, right? So it's, again, an active coping mechanism that blocks that stressor from having the effect, ultimately the long-term effect. But, um, you know, resilient individuals can have very severe, significant response during the stressor. And in fact, there's some beautiful work from the human literature showing that it's the individual, actually from the animal literature as well, that it's the individuals who have the biggest stress response, meaning they release the most cortisol during a stressful event that ultimately tend to be the most resilient long-term. So again, it's not that they're not feeling the stressor. It's not that they're not processing the stressor. It's whatever happens during the processing of that stressor to not allow the stressor, the stressor itself to embed itself into uh, their physiology and biology and psychology. So it's nothing uniquely different about them in physiology or chemistry or something like that. It's the way that they're actively handling, processing this moment that's causing them to have that reduced experience. I have one other question that's nerdy about that, but I just keep thinking this thought in my mind. It is you stress or good stress versus distress both of those stressors are always playing out. Alex, you gave us a great example of eustress, which is I choose to go get into this ice bath because I feel amazing after that. A distress could be financial. It could be a toxic workplace. It could be domestic violence, whatever it is. But from your perspective, does the same active processing hold true? It doesn't matter what kind of stress it is. It's how you handle it. Uh, from my perspective, actually, those two different types of stressors are fundamentally doing something different. So a stressor that is happening to you is going to affect your your brain behavior, psychology very differently than a stressor that you're choosing to put yourself through. And that component of autonomy versus, you know, things happening to you is is really key to what can happen during prolonged stress. There is no amount of chosen stress necessarily that, it, you know, is bad for you. I mean, maybe for some, right? But the but chosen stressors are stressors that actually enhance resilience and enhance your long-term well-being and your long-term functioning, whereas stressors that are happening to you are the ones that tend to actually cause the long-term deleterious effects like depression, anxiety, PTSD, et cetera. So they are very different. And in fact, you know, the hypothesis here is that if a person can engage in a lot of their own um, chosen stressors, then they're, they're going to be practicing their 
resiliency circuits such that when an unwanted stressor comes on board, their physiology can react to it, um, you know, autonomically uh, better. I, I always like extreme examples. And I have studied resilience a little bit, not 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 18 years like you, Danny, <laughs> but I've studied resilience a little bit. And one example that I always found really powerful, and I don't know if you've heard about this guy, but his name was Admiral Jim Stockdale. So this guy was an admiral uh, during the Vietnam War, and he was a POW prisoner in, in North Vietnam, and he was a prisoner from 1965 to 73. He was tortured 28 times. And he had no inkling if he was going to ever make it out, if he was ever going to see his family again. There was no discussion of that. And he made the decision. He said, I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life. So his ability to make meaning of this stress that is, is truly unimaginable to me. And I, I think perhaps for all of us, you know, in, in this conversation, but he made meaning out of it. And when he was asked, well, who didn't make it? He said, oh, that's easy, the optimists. And said, well, wait, why, why didn't the optimists make it? He said, well, you know, they kept thinking, oh, we're going to get out at Christmas. We're going to get out on July 4th. We're going to get out at Thanksgiving. They kept tying this belief to a specific date. And so what he said was the critical thing for him to do was to know in his heart that he would get out eventually and that he would make meaning of it, but lean into the absolutely crippling reality of what it was in that moment and not deny the experience that he was having and balancing those things and holding space for both. And I just, I don't know, I just found that really, really fascinating as, as a story of an outlier who experienced unimaginable hardship and, and found resilience. And I wonder about you know, this idea of making meaning and, and where does that sort of fit into this conversation for you? I had not heard about that, that particular example, but you know, it, it's actually a very similar theme. Um, me, meaning is a very similar theme um, across individuals that are resilient. And it also brought to mind um, that one of the best training tools for resiliency building is meditation. And what meditation does is, is sort of bring you into that moment, into the moment in time and bring you into the present, right? Because most of us live either in the past or the future, um, you know, future in terms of like, where we want this and we want that, et cetera, or past, we're longing for something that happened and, and very little of our time is spent in, in the present. And, and meditation is the key tool to train you to actually live in, in the moment. And so I really love that example because it brings to mind um, the, the same concept. Um, so yes, I agree. Bringing meaning to whatever experience you're having, whether good or bad, is a key uh, ingredient of resiliency. Danny, we are going to take you into a speed round. We're going to ask you five questions. And if you're able to answer them as quickly as you can, top of the head, whatever comes to mind from your gut. And Nate is going to kick us off. We've talked a lot about connectedness and the importance of human connection. But in doing so, are we devaluing individualism? Absolutely not. Again, 
two different circuits, two different parts of our brains, and both of them can coexist very happily. And actually, if I may, I'm going to tell you an example of uh, this pluralistic view that I did not come up with. Um, it's, um, uh, it's from a professor uh, who's a his- historian of science, okay? But GPS system on your phone, right? Works like magic. It's really cool. But here's the thing. There's three different types of physics that underlie bringing that map onto your phone that don't actually speak to each other. There is the Newtonian physics, right? That's the physics that actually launched a rocket up into space with a satellite to take the satellite into space. Then there is the quantum physics. This this is the physics that actually can hold very precise time in order to, to have that clock be up into space. However, because of the low gravity up there in the space for, for the satellite, you also need relativity physics now in order to correct slightly for the low gravity at which the clock, the quantum clock is ticking up there before it gets sent to your phone, right? So here you have three different types of physics, Newtonian quantum physics and relativity physics, which on paper, you can't make it work, right? Like if you try to solve an equation with the three, you just can't. And yet they're working beautifully in concert together to create that perfect map on your phone, right? That is what we're talking about. There are two completely different systems in our brains that are underlying individualism and social connectedness, and both can coexist and actually probably will do really well when they're working together. You wear a lot of different hats and are an incredibly productive human. How do you reduce stress and stay balanced? Um, so I, um, I do have a lot of hobbies actually. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm a real avid mushroom picker. Um, I've been collecting mushrooms, uh, picking or hunting mushrooms, uh, since I was a little kid. Um, so I, I, this is something that I still love. And for the last two years, there's been no mushrooms, which I'm very distressed by. Mm. Um, so they come in waves. They tend to be every two years, but now there's been two years in a row that there, that, uh, haven't been a lot of mushrooms. I write. So when I almost quit my, um, my physician scientist career, I, um, I was going to be a, a writer in New York City. I mean, how cliche is that? Um, I even got my bartending license at Columbia University back then in the early oh, 2000s wow. and uh, even did bartend for, for a couple of weeks. But then I got accidentally uh, pregnant. And, and so that there ended my um, <laughs> bartending career. And yeah. that's how I crawled back to academia. Uh, but I do still do creative writing um, and uh, actually have written a, a movie script with one of my best friends most recently. Um, I also, in this is a, a recent development in the last few years, uh, paint. Uh, but, and, and I think that you'll be surprised, right? Because I'm a, a big individualist, but I paint by number. Um, which I think I was resistant to my whole life because I don't like structure. I don't like people telling me what to do, right? But uh, um, uh, somehow it's a very soothing activity. So I do have a lot of hobbies in addition to to my, um, you know, normal, the fact that my work is a true hobby. I mean, it's such a, a, an honor and privilege to do the work that I do. And I don't take it for granted any day. I, I really enjoy um, every single day that I, I go to work. We matter when we are loved. Um, it's essential for human connection, our sense of self in this world. Is it possible that we can welcome more care and love in the workplace? I absolutely think so. And I think a lot of the reason my organic hierarchical structure works in my lab is that we absolutely allow for that. 
I think it's become so taboo to hug somebody, you know, or, um, you know, to, to be vulnerable and emotional. And there's good reason. There's definitely been a lot of instances where, you know, things went wrong when there was too much intimacy in the workplace. But I also think that we've gone a little bit to the far edge in terms of being so politically correct that we have forgotten our human origins. And I do uh, wish and hope for a workplace that that allows a lot of that vulnerability back. Here, here. We feel the same way. Danny, thank you for sharing your personal story of resilience and overcoming those setbacks to live your passion and purpose. Thank you for doing the research that you're doing and helping to illuminate how resilience works in our lives, the two circuits of resilience and how this is an active process. We have to engage in doing it in order to become more resilient as human beings. Uh, This work is critical right now in the world that we're in, in the workforce that we're in, and we deeply appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about your work and uh, get in touch? So I'm pretty easily Googleable at this point. Um, and um, I'm also happy to share my email, uh, Danny, D-A-N-I dot Dumitriu, D-U-M-I-T-R-I-U at Columbia.edu. Always happy to chat with people. Um, you can also find me on Twitter at the Door Lab, D-O-O-R, the Door Lab. And again, uh, really happy to share our work um, and any insight I can have in terms of improving workplace for other folks. Thank you for joining us on this journey. In a world where attention is scarce and content is abundant, it means a lot. To learn more about this episode, go to disruptedwork.com forward slash podcast, where you can find show notes and key details about the episode our guests, and how to connect with us. Our website also contains additional resources for learning, including our future work mindset model and action plan. The best way you can support the disrupted workforce is to subscribe to our show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To help others thrive in the future work, spread the word by rating and reviewing the podcast and sharing your favorite episodes with the people you care about. Disrupt yourself to unlock your future.